0: you to turn in your Bibles to the 10th Psalm. Turn to Psalms. If you're not used to handling a Bible and you open it up right at that 50% mark, right in the middle, just open it right up and you should land in the Psalms. Those big numbers are the chapters, so to speak, or the Psalm numbers. We're looking for big number 10, Psalm 10. And we are going to be looking at the entire thing together today. news cycles are obsessed with why. They presume and prognosticate all the time and offer us psychological profiles, political commentary, sociological analysis. We see the same thing in the books that we read, in the television shows that we watch, in the movies that we consume. How many of them are obsessed with a kind of criminal profiling you're gonna take a quick glance at any one of your streaming providers, you might see things like criminal minds, blacklist, mind hunter, or the making of a murderer, just to name a few. Well, what we have in Psalm 10 is God profiling the wicked man and telling us why he does wicked things. And in light of that, what hope does the righteous man have, especially when the wicked man seems to prosper in everything he does? With that in mind, I'd have you hear now the reading of God's word, the 10th Psalm. Listen to what the psalmist writes. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. And your judgments, well, they're on high, out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he just puffs at them. And he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not meet adversity. And his mouth, well, it's filled with Cursing and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent, and his eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. And he seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. And the helpless, well, they are crushed. And and they sink down and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. (laughs) He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account. No, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. And you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from His land. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted and You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. We have one big idea coursing through the passage, and it's this. God alone is king. He sees the wicked, and he will deliver justice. God alone is king. He sees the wicked and he will deliver justice. Two things are going to stand out as the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has organized this passage. First of all in verses 1 through 11, we are going to consider and see a wicked man exposed. We're going to see his pride and we're going to see his plans. We'll see a wicked man exposed. And then in verses 12 to 18, we're going to see a righteous man revived. The righteous are revived. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see his prayer, his plea, and we're going to see his praise. That's how the psalm ends, with praise. And he begins that first section there in verse 1, considering the exposure of a wicked man. Notice he begins with a hard question. Why why? O Lord, why do you hide yourself? I wonder how many of you in your hearts have ever asked that question. Whether due to circumstances in your own life or what you see on the news, how long, why does this continue? It's interesting, this psalm, should be connected thematically with the psalm that precedes it, Psalm 9, and with the psalm that comes after it, Psalm 11. In Psalm 9, David acclaimed the Lord's previous rebuke to the nations, and he prayed for God to do it again. And so Psalm 9 ends triumphantly. Verse 19, you can take a look at it there. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail and let the nations be judged before you. But notice that Psalm 10 opens up on an entirely different note. It's in the minor key. Asking why it is that the covenant-keeping Lord holds back and hides himself. Back in Psalm 9, or verse 9 rather, The psalmist says, the Lord is a stronghold in times of trouble. But now in Psalm 10, he says, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And so which is it? Is the Lord a stronghold or does the Lord hide himself? Well, if that isn't the great perplexing reality of the Christian life, when we consider the the reality of evil and sin in the world in light of a good and all-holy God, There are times when in all of our confidence, with God's help, by His grace, we say you are indeed a stronghold in times of trouble. And there are times in the weakness of our own flesh that we look up and we say, where are you at? Did you forget us? If Psalm 9 celebrates God's presence, then Psalm 10 questions His absence. But notice it's not a faithless questioning. The psalmist is not like a prosecuting attorney, coming against God, presuming God's guilt, he's asking in the way that a son who knows little inquires of a father who knows more. What do you know that I don't know? What have you not yet told me? What do I need to see or remember that I'm not seeing or remembering? So we see now, even in Psalm 10, that the Bible gives words for our sighings. It, it gives us permission to ask really hard questions of God. It doesn't give us qu- permission to question God. God is good, and all that he does is good. But it gives us permission to ask him hard questions why? How long? And the reason that he's asking these questions is because in verses. To and following, the, the wicked are prospering. We're going to see in verses 2 through 5, his wicked pride, and then we're going to see in verses 6 through 11, his wicked plans. Consider his wicked pride. First of all, verses 2 through 5, look at how the actions of the wicked are described. In verse 2, it's described, first of all, as Arrogance. In arrogance he hotly pursues the poor. What is arrogance? It is it is no less than the excessive sense of self-importance. Proverbs 22 two says, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all, but the wicked man denies this. It says here he literally burns up the poor. He consumes the poor. He consumes the weak. He's a bully. And in his mind, he's not a God-made man. He is a self-made man. He thinks he's a better man. And in verse 3, that makes him a boastful man. You see there, he boasts in the desires of his soul, that he is a greedy man. And he's glad to be greedy. He flaunts his, his pride, his greed, as if, His sins are really virtues, and he consumes the weak, and he curses the Lord because ultimately what he worships is his own desires. In fact, that word used to refer to the desire of the wicked there in verse 3, that same word is used again in verse 17. Do you see it there? O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, and that's in the context of the righteous one that calls out to God for help. Friends, everybody boasts in something. Everyone desires something. The righteous man boasts in the Lord and desires to see his justice. But the wicked boasts in his own desires. He doesn't desire the Lord. What he desires is whatever he craves in any given moment. You see, wickedness, according to verse 3, and now in verse 4, is ultimately a worship problem. Because in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, he says, there is no God. His success only vindicates his wickedness. It blinds him to God's judgment. That's what we see in in verse 5, that his ways prosper at all times He says, your judgments are on high. It is out of his sight. He doesn't even consider them. He doesn't even know them. He's made himself so big and God so small that all he does is just puff at his opposition. He's arrogant. He has a sense of invincibility accompanying and following his sense of superiority. And it's out of all of this that he makes, in verses 6 through 11, his wicked plans. Notice that in verses 6 and verse 11, open and closes the section. And they open and close with the same phrase, he says in his heart. Two assumptions are motivating the things that he says in his heart, motivating his wicked plans in verses 6 through 11. Namely, I can't be moved... Ain't nobody gonna stop me. And God has forgotten. He didn't even see me. He says, Who's gonna stop me? You? Are you gonna stop me? Is God gonna stop me? No, listen, if there really is a God who cares, why hasn't he done anything? No, it seems that my prospering, when you look around, seems to prove otherwise. Is what I do really all that bad if it leads to all of this? No, it seems your God has nothing to say. And this attitude shapes all of his plans, it shapes in verse 7, the way that he speaks. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Would you be surprised if I told you that the most common form of violence in the Psalms isn't inflicted by weapons, but by words? In his own study through the Psalm, C.S. Lewis was shocked by the same thing. He wrote, quote, I had half expected that in a simpler and more violent age, when more evil was done with the knife, when the big stick and the firebrand, less would be done by talk. But in reality, he says, the psalmists mention hardly any kind of evil more than this one, which is the most, which the most civilized societies share. It is all over the Psalter. One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. Human societies have changed over time, the technology. Surrounding the weapons of our warfare have changed over time, but beloved, the human heart has not changed over time. It is the same today as it has always been since sin came into the world, and none of us are righteous, no, not one. That's how the Apostle Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 3. And right there he adds... Verse 7 is a quotation in a long string of Old Testament quotations. And he's trying to prove a point. He takes verse 7, he applies it to his own argument. Whereas the psalmist is applying verse 7 to the wicked man, the apostle Paul applies it in Romans chapter 3 to every man. And here's the reality he's saying that our ledgers show that all of us at one point or another have cursed someone else or that we have deceived others. If not with bald-faced lies, then with half-truths or exaggerations, we have used our words to gain advantages, to promote ourselves, to put down others. Even if we follow it up with, was I not just joking? Stop being so offended so easily. All of these ways, we use our words at times, don't we, to consume the weak. Husbands speaking harshly to their wives, parents with their children, bosses with their employees, holding paychecks over their heads as if a sword to the neck, rebuking, scolding, shaming, name-calling. If it's true that our tongues reveal our hearts, as the Bible says, and as we see here in verse 7, then what the Apostle Paul says is true. Every man is a wicked man, apart from the righteousness of Christ. Every man is a wicked man, that is, every man but one. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived who can say Psalm 10.7 was never true of me. That doesn't describe me. In fact, the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Peter both testify that, quote, no deceit was ever found in his mouth. This makes Jesus not only the perfect man, but it also makes Him the only qualified mediator between God and a wicked man, between God and sinners like us. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans when he quotes verse 7. "'It's to prove from our own tongues that none of us are righteous.'" It's to prove to us that working harder to get this little organ under control doesn't ultimately make any difference, for by works of the law, no human being can be justified in God's sight. Wicked people need alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of us. It is, as Paul concludes, the righteousness of God then that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul builds his whole argument for the gospel on the basis that we are not righteous. All of us have mouths like this that reveal hearts like this. And the only way that we'll be able to stand before an all-holy God is that if we receive a righteousness that is not our own, but that was earned by Christ Jesus alone. Received by faith alone whereby our sins described perfectly in verse 7 might be forgiven, taken away as far as the east is from the west, because an innocent man on whose lips was never found an ounce of deceit willfully, willingly laid down his life for us. But the wicked man of Psalm 10 refuses to acknowledge any such need for righteousness. His pride shapes the way that he speaks to others. And in verses 8 through 10, it shapes the way that he treats others. Verses 8 and 9 notice he's calculating and he's cruel. The psalmist describes him as a lion who's waiting for his prey and then devours them, taking either their life or, more often than not, their livelihood. In verse 10, he's a bully. He's a bully that makes himself look strong by crushing, drowning, and destroying the weak. And when he sees a bruised reed, oh, he rushes to break it. He loves it. And when he sees a dimly lit wick, he loves to put it out. Consider how different the Lord Jesus Christ is to the wicked. Consider the way that Jesus is to the poor. That unlike the wicked, Jesus never, ever breaks bruised reeds. And he never, ever puts out dimly lit wicks. Time and again, when Jesus saw the poor in spirit, the Bible says he had compassion on them. And in that we see no less than God's heart in the heart of Christ. And so when we read about the wicked man, our imaginations should immediately run to the Gospels and elsewhere to consider how this man is so unlike the Lord who has called us and saved us, and that even in our greatest moments of weakness and of frailty will never break us and will never snuff us out. He delights in bearing us up, and He will never break us down. He's so different than the wicked. He is good. All that he does is good, and that we can trust him. But notice in verse 11, the proud heart of this wicked man is filled not ultimately with pity, but with presumption. It judges God's patience as impotence. Since God hasn't stepped in, either he can't step in, or he just won't step in. That's what he's saying. He's forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. Friends, hell will be filled with presumptuous people. Consider Paul's warning from Romans 2. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friend, if you're here and you're investigating, looking in on Christian things, then I hope you would walk away understanding this is, what we under, this is what Christians believe. This is what the God who has created you has revealed in His Word and would have you know now, He is not impotent, but He is patient. He is patient toward you. The wages of sin is death and everything that you've received over, above, and beyond death is God's rich kindness to you, even to sustain you to this very day and bring you into this gathering to hear His word that you would no longer presume on the patience of God, but that you would throw yourself on the mercy of Christ offered to you even now, that your sins would be forgiven. And that rather than face condemnation on that final day of judgment for all of your proud presumption, that you would find yourself accepted as a son and a daughter in the kingdom of the Most High. Oh friend, don't presume on God. Don't presume that just because He hasn't dealt with your sin, that He won't deal with your sin. Instead, throw yourself on His patience and His kindness and repentance and trust in Christ. Because, friend, though God is patient, He is not eternally so. God's patience has an expiration date. And it's this expiration date, beginning in verse 12, that ultimately revives the righteous. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the wicked or the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart you will not call to account, but you you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Two things stand out in the righteous man's response. We see his plea in verses 12 to 15. And if you scan further down, you see praise culminating from his plea in verses 16 through 18. A plea leading to praise. Consider his prayer first of all. He says in verse 12, lift up your hand. It's the language that one might use to To call a warrior, raising his arm in battle. The psalmist is calling on a champion to defend the war, a David, to slay the Goliath. No less than the Lord Jesus Christ to crush the wicked and and to shame the powers and the principalities. Though They thought they won by nailing him to a cross he raised three days later and put them to shame. One of the common themes throughout the Old Testament is God is a warrior, and He fights for His people, and all that He does is good, and He will establish justice that the wicked cannot and they will not win. But the wicked says in verses 13 and 14, God will never see it, but the godly say, but you do see. The wicked says God is forgotten, but the godly says, no, look at verse 14, God's just taking notes. The wicked says God is hiding, but the godly say, verse 14, that God is our helper. The wicked says God will never see it, but the godly says, no, he does, and he will deal with it, and he will act. So the psalmist in verse 15 calls on God to be true to his word and to act decisively, Against violence and oppression. Break the arm of the wicked. See what he's saying, verse 12? Lift up your hand and break his arm. As I'm talking literally, the arm is considered. The instrument of power. It seems like the wicked have all of the power. They're the ones that are prospering. No, would you snap his arm in half like a twig? Show him where real power comes from. Show him what real prosperity looks like. Not in rebellion against you, but in submission to you and your law. Notice the psalmist doesn't domesticate God. He doesn't think that he won't act violently against the wicked and judgment and that when he does all that he does is just beloved we are meant to take away from these handful of verses that god does in fact defend the weak and the powerless and above all he will break those he will break his enemies as he defends those who are poor in spirit He will make all things right. He brings judgment on oppressors, and He is storing up wrath for them on the final day. So when you ask questions, why, O Lord, why do you hide yourself? I think sometimes we're tempted to stop in our thoughts at verse 11. We don't want to go any further. And you realize that when we do that, all we do is ultimately sink into self-pity or self-loathing or fear, or insecurity, we cannot stop with verse 11, simply griping about the wicked. Our laments have to immediately turn to the character of God and of His promises. That's the example that we see here. And when we pray from those promises, God will strengthen our hearts. He will remind us of what He will be faithful to do, and that will naturally lead us in verses 16 to 18 to praise. Notice the psalmist never got an answer to his question in verse 1. He still doesn't know why, but he knows who. He knows the Lord, the covenant-making and keeping God, is king forever and ever. He knows that the nations perish from his land. He knows that God hears the desire of the afflicted. He knows that God will strengthen their heart, that God will incline his ear, and he knows that God will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth one day will strike terror no more. He knows it. Though he doesn't get an answer to his why questions, and often you and I don't either, God has given us abundant revelation about who? We are not left to question who He is or what He's like or what He will do. We can trust His Word in all of these things. We know that God is King. We sung that earlier today and we believe it. We know that God will defend His people. We know that though the world may rage against the church and the gospel, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We know that He stands up for the weak. We know that for all those who have to give up much for the sake of following Christ in this life, that we will be rewarded in the next. Above all, we look back at the cross where God's justice was poured out on Christ. For all who believe in Him, And we look forward to His return when the very same justice that was poured out on Christ at the cross for us will be poured out on every presumptuous sinner who has raged against Him and His gospel and His church at the end of the age and not one will stand. The psalmist is not embarrassed by the wrath of God. It is his great hope when he sees the wicked prospering. It is what secures him and stabilizes him in a world that seems to be spinning out of control. We may not know why, but we do know who, and we can trust him. And so, beloved, as we consider things in our own lives, we consider things that we see on the news, we need to give consideration To who is our God? What has He promised us? How has He kept all of His promises to us in Christ? We've trusted in Him to this point. Can we not trust Him all the way to the end? And the answer is, surely with His help, we can. Beloved, trust the Lord. You know, I've been doing pastoral ministry now for various kinds of ministry now for close to 25 years. I've sat with people and cried with people who ask why, 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 why? Why did I lose a baby for medical malpractice and the doctor gets off? And plays golf. Why did my husband or wife leave me, divorce me, shred to pieces my life, my home, my family, and now seem to be prospering with a new spouse and a new life in a new house while I'm left here to deal with the rubble? Why was my child killed as he was driving down 380 by a drunk driver who was guilty of multiple incidents, who had a record for the same thing? Why? Why does the wicked keep getting off? Why? Why? You just have to sit there and you just have to go, I can't answer that question. I don't know why. All I can do is mourn with you as you mourn and weep with you as you weep. I don't know why. And I can't take the pain away and I know it's deep and I know it hurts. And you're wondering if it's ever going away. And in this life, I can't make those guarantees. But I can guarantee that there is coming a day when wicked men will strike terror on this earth no more. There is coming a day where wickedness and pain and sorrow all has an expiration date. And I don't know exactly how God is using it in your life now or what he plans to bring out of it a month from now or a year from now or five years from now. No doubt he has your good in mind and he will bring it about. I can't answer the why. But what I can do is remind you over and over and over again of who? who you serve, of the God who loves you, of the God who so loves you that he offered his son for you, of his son who so loves you that he willingly gave up his life for you, and is so committed to you that he's given you his Holy Spirit to indwell you, so that the Father's love would be poured out into your heart, Romans 5, who's so committed to you that he is... Declared an expiration date to all evil and wickedness. Of who has made great promises to you. That you may lose houses and lands. and, And family members in this life. You will gain a hundredfold. In his kingdom when he comes. I can't answer why. The psalmist doesn't get his answer. But we do know who. And all of that focuses on one central event. How can I trust God? Friend, go to the cross. Consider Christ crucified for you. Can you not trust that if God can bring the greatest good from the death of His only begotten Son for your eternal salvation can he not bring good out of our deepest pain. Wait on the Lord. Wait on him. Ask him hard questions. Plead with him. Lift up your hand. Forget not. And even when the locusts have eaten everything, Even when the things that you love the most in this life are taken away and will never return, praise Him. God knows you're too weak to do it on your own and He has given us words to fill our mouths in moments like that. He has not left us ill-equipped. He has given us all that we need for life and godliness even in our most bitter trials. Wait on the Lord, beloved. Let's pray.